It's very good to be with you, and I want to thank you for your invitation and uh, your efforts to come under these very adverse circumstances of the uh, virus. And uh, I realize it takes a bit of bravery to get out in conditions like this. And so I hope that the Lord will uh, bless you for taking the risk that you have. In the final book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, four times Jesus will say that he is the Alpha and the Omega. And uh, if you don't know, the Alpha was the first character in the Greek alphabet, and Omega was the last. The Alpha looked much like our letter A, and the Omega looked like our letter W. Alpha and Omega being the first and last characters in the Greek alphabet. So Jesus is saying he's the first and he is the last. And really you don't need Greek uh, in order to understand that. It says so explicitly. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. And uh, not coincidentally that said twice at the beginning of Revelation, and it is said twice at the end of Revelation for a total of four times. Now, when you get into the final chapters of the Bible, especially the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, you're going to see that in point after point, parallels are being drawn with the first few chapters in the Bible. And point after point, either comparisons or contrasts between uh, the final couple of chapters and the first couple of chapters in the Bible. And uh, tonight, I'm hoping to go over around 17 uh, different parallels, or I should say comparisons or contrasts between those two. But before we start, this ought to show any thinking mind the futility of claiming that you're a Christian but denying the literal truthfulness of the first few chapters of the Bible. If the first few chapters are wrong, then the last few chapters are wrong and everything in between is wrong because the end of the Bible is going to wrap us right back around to where we started. And as I talk about uh, these, these parallels between the two, the first should be obvious. We've got a brand new earth at the beginning of the Bible, and we've got a brand new earth at the end of the Bible. So when we go to Second Peter, or excuse me, Revelation 21, verse 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth, the first heaven and earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, I've seen uh, good brethren try to say that this new heaven and earth were just mere symbols. Uh, some have said that they represent the church. I've never believed that. Uh, I've always believed they are literal. Uh, one of these days, you're going to be walking on the new earth. And I could give uh, multiple proofs of this. 
but it is sufficient to go to 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 10. Now listen to what the apostle says carefully. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens being the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now that tells me that the new heavens and earth can't be representations of the church because Peter was squarely in the church and he said, I'm still looking for this. He was writing to people who were in the church and he said, we're still looking for the new heavens and new earth. Furthermore, he presented the new heavens and earth as being the replacements for the old heavens and earth that had been destroyed by fire. He said, we look for these things according to his promise. You go over to Isaiah 65, and again Isaiah 66, the last two chapters of the book of Isaiah, you'll read about the new heavens and new earth, and there's no sensible way to interpret it except literally. And then there'll be places in the Bible where it will we'll refer to the new heavens and earth without calling it by that name. So, for example, look at the final verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1.10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed. He did not say they shall be done away, but he said they shall be changed. Now let's move down to Hebrews 2. Verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Now I welcome you uh, to start backing up from that point. Look at verse 4, then look at verse 3, then look at verse 2, then look at verse 1. Back up into chapter 1. Look at the last verse there. Keep backing up and tell me where did he speak of the world to come? Unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. I'll tell you, there's only one place he could have spoken of the world to come. That is where he said, this one is waxing old. It shall be folded up. And then God shall change it. Besides, if I'm right in saying that John was deliberately drawing parallels between 
his last, the things in his last two chapters and the things in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, that would tell me the new heavens and earth is literal. Why? Because this one is. This one is literal. And that one is the answer to this. Now, when I uh, get over at the beginning of the Bible, I have a bride and a groom. The first man, Adam, with his bride who was taken from his side. Now listen to what the Bible says about this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they should be one flesh. He had a bride taken from his side. He said, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I want you to go over and read John 17, where Jesus Christ was praying for your salvation uh, immediately before he went to the cross. And I want you to notice time and time again, he said in there that he and his people are one. Furthermore, when Jesus was on the cross, a spear was stuck into his side. Now, I can't prove this. But my prediction will be that the spear was stuck in at the very rib from which Adam's bride was made. And when we get over into the book of John and his 19th chapter and 34th verse, John seems to make a lot of the spear penetrating the side of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. And forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, he being John himself, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. I also want you to notice where we read in the Genesis text that when God had made Adam's bride, he brought her to him. I just read that to you. Well, that sounds remarkably familiar too, does it not? No man can come to me except my Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is John 6.44. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. All right, so I've got a bride with the groom in the opening chapters of the Bible. Now look what I've got at the end of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city... New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride 
adorned for her husband. Now this new Jerusalem is a thing that is spoken of a handful of times in the New Testament scriptures. It is a literal city, though it also has a, a symbolic painting. Uh, it's used in Galatians 4 as a symbol of the New Covenant. It's also used as a symbol of the elect family of God in general. And incidentally, when people get into fusses about whether something in the Bible is symbolic or literal, usually both sides are right. It is literal and it's symbolic. Uh, the rock in the wilderness was symbolic of Christ. At the same time, it was a real rock. You wouldn't want to bang your head on it. It was a real rock. And so this New Jerusalem is a real city, yet it is symbolic. Here, symbolic of the bride of Christ. So we have uh, a groom and his bride at the end and a groom and his, and his bride at the beginning. In the beginning, we have in the midst of Eden, the tree of life. That tree is very fascinating. But when we get over into Revelation and we read about the final eternal state, we've got something even better in the midst. The one who made the tree of life. Which would you rather have? So we have in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now we go to Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. God is in their midst. God the true tree of life. God is in their midst and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, with respect to that tree of life, over in the Garden of Eden, we have one. At the end of the Bible, we have many. The end of the Bible talks about a place where the tree of life is growing on both sides all along the river. It's uh, growing up and down the streets. And I sure wished I owned one of these trees. I'd be the richest man in the world if I owned one of these heavenly trees. Now let me read to you about the trees of life that are in heaven. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, and by the way, the reason I can't read it out is I've got new glasses on. And I hope my eyes will adapt to them, but at any rate, you bear with me. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. I believe when he talks about tree of life here, he means species of tree because it's clear that there are many of them. Which bear twelve manner of fruits, 
and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Sure, you don't have to pair, uh, plant a pear tree and an apple tree and a peach tree and an orange tree. You plant one tree, it bears all of it. Bears it year round. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations. You know, if I could just get my hand on one leaf, I'd be the richest man in the world. No more coronavirus. I got the cure. I guarantee you, I'm not going to share that leaf with Anthony Fauci. I'm not going to share it uh, with him at all. Now, I've already read to you about uh, another parallel. There's a wondrous river in both places. We'll read in Genesis 2.10, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. And it names the four rivers that derive from it. Two of these rivers are still on the earth today, Tigris and Euphrates. Now I get over into Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. We've got another wondrous river. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, I see that both places are illuminated, but illuminated in a far superior way in the latter case than in the former. Genesis 1.16 And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. I don't know how uh, anyone could think that the sun and the moon were just big accidents. A few years ago, uh, they began to study uh, what they call exoplanets, or planets that are orbiting other stars. And uh, they found ways to detect these, and I understand that they're discovering them at about a rate of one a week. And uh, I remember at the beginning they were saying, we're going to find just thousands and thousands of them like the Earth. And there's going to be life on them because it evolved there the way it did here. Well, I've been watching uh, all of that uh, science develop for the past few years. And uh, man, oh man, haven't they been surprised. They've discovered hundreds and hundreds of planets, and every one of them was a hell. Every one. A burning hell, a frozen hell. And uh, just a few months ago, they dismissed 80% of them in one swoop, according to what I read, because they're orbiting stars about which life simply could not live. Uh, these stars are too unstable. And so now they're saying we can't uh, just confine ourselves, or we can't uh, we can't look at all planets around all stars. We got to find a sun-like star. Well, now look at the moon. People have shown if it weren't just the size it is, in the place where it is, spinning at the rate it is, 
we'd probably all be dead. Make it a little bigger, bring it a little closer. You'd have massive uh, tides, very destructive tides. Put it out too far, the earth would become stagnant. It would have uh, imbalanced uh, rotation. All kinds of things would go wrong if it weren't just right. Uh, there was a book written a few years ago called The Fortuitous Planet, Talk About the Earth. In that book, he showed in case after case that if you make the most minute change to the parameters of this planet, we're all dead. And yet they tell us it all just happened by accident. They criticize people who have faith. Why, they got more faith than any of us Christians would ever hope to have. What faith they have. But now, when we go to Revelation 21, it's even better. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Excuse me, Revelation 21, 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. We go to the beginning of the Bible, we have an earth with a sea. We go to the end of the Bible, we've got an earth without a sea. Genesis 1 verse 10, and God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seeds. And God saw that it was good. You know, science says that at one time this entire planet was covered with water. Well, that's one point where science got it right. Uh, because the Bible says when God originally created the earth, the entire planet was covered with water. But in Revelation 21 verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. We don't need a sea anymore. You know, the seas of the earth uh, have been very beneficial in preventing the advance of wicked man. What if there had been no English channel? Hitler probably would have taken England. Uh, what if there had been no Pacific Ocean? The Japs probably would have invaded this country. I'm not sure how far they would have gone, but they would have made a big mess of it. So it's a good thing that God has separated us by seas. It has served to our protection. But this is a world of peace, and there's no need uh, for such deterrence. All right, now, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. He talks about how that in the proximity of Eden... There were precious stones, precious metals. It reads this way. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium. And the onyx stone. Are you impressed? Now, people want to know, where is this land of Havilah? Well, don't we wish we knew. All right? Uh, but I'm going to take the Bible and its word that over there, there was a land. In the ancient world, it was rich in gold. 
but nothing to be compared to what I read about in Revelation 21, verse 18. And the building of the wall of it, referring to the heavenly city, and the city was pure gold, black and the glass, and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprasus, the eleventh adjacent, the twelfth an amethyst. And if you will ask me uh, what all those stones are, I'll tell you I don't know. I don't have a degree in gemology. And I doubt John had one either. He just wrote down what God told him to write. Listen to all those gems and those precious stones. We got them at the beginning of the Bible. We got them at the end. But the end is far more spectacular. All right, now, all things good at the beginning of the Bible. All things good and new at the end. Genesis 1.31, God saw what he had made, he pronounced it good. Revelation 21, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I've said many times, I'm so glad he didn't say, I make all new things. He said, I make all things new. If he had said, I make all new things, then that leaves me and you out. Leaves me out, because I'm surely not new. But he said, I make all things new. All things new and good at the beginning. All things new and good at the end. All right, now this part gets very interesting. We got a conniving serpent at the beginning of the Bible. We got a defeated serpent at the end. So we read about the old serpent, Genesis 3.1, more subtle than any beast of the field, secured the fall of mankind, and the serpent we all know was the devil. But now let's read at the end of the Bible, Revelation 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent. And what's he alluding to there? That old serpent. He's alluding to the first few chapters in the Bible. Well, who is the old serpent? He explains, which is the devil and Satan. And bound him a thousand years. Put him in the bottomless pit and bound him there a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are. And he should be tormented day and night forever and ever. I got a wily, crafty serpent at the beginning of the Bible. I got a defeated serpent at the end. Here's another thing I've got. At the beginning of the Bible, 
I have a promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Remember that? First prophecy of Christ of all the Bible. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Thou shalt bruise his heel, and he shall bruise thy head. So you're going to render a crippling blow to him, but he is going to render a devastating blow to you. Well, guess what I've got at the end of the Bible? A seven-headed beast, and one of those heads is wounded. One of those heads is wounded. Now, uh, you you may say to me, it was wounded, but it wasn't it wasn't destroyed. And uh, that's a very good point. The Bible says all the world will marvel when they see this beast. And he's got a head that was mortally wounded, but still lives. All right, now, uh, the devil's playing games here. In the book of Revelation, he's constantly imitating God. Uh, God has a son. The devil comes up with a son, the son of perdition. God's got a bride, uh, the New Jerusalem, the devil. He's got a bride, the Babylonian harlot. And we can just go on and on. And God said he was going to wound the head of the serpent. So the uh, serpent comes up with seven heads and says, see if you can get all these. And one of the heads gets wounded, but then it comes back to life and all the world marvels. you see. All right, now, <clears throat> there's probably a lot of that I don't understand, but I'm going to tell you I, I'm confident of this, that in the last days, uh, it is going to be very trying to our faith. And in fact, Jesus has said this in many places. It's going to look like the devil's won. You remember uh, what he said about the unjust judge in Luke chapter 18? Uh, Will not God avenge his own elect, which cry to him day and night? Oh, yeah, sure, he'll do it. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Many people are going to be, have fallen by the wayside because the times will be too trying. Uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 25. You remember the ten virgins? Five wise, five foolish. Why were they foolish? Because they didn't have enough oil or spirit for the long haul. They didn't have enough oil or spirit for the long haul. And even the five who were wise slumbered and slept. All ten of them did that. So whenever uh, the head on this beast appears to have been destroyed, but then it comes back to life, I suspect you'll have defections from so-called Christianity like never before in history. you got to hang on. Because that head's going to get destroyed. And uh, I love the, uh, I believe it's the last verse. No, it's near the last verse of Psalm 110. Thou shalt wound the heads over many countries. In other words, all seven of them are going to get knocked out. And the first prophecy in the Bible will come to pass. Now again, at the beginning of the Bible, it's talked about a serpent with a wounded head. When we get over to the end of the Bible, we have a beast with a wounded head. All right, now, 
At the beginning of the Bible, we have death. At the end of the Bible, we have no death. And uh, God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. This is Genesis 2, 6, 8. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You know, when we say man is totally depraved, that he's dead in trespasses and sins, all we're doing is just affirming what God said right there. And whenever you say man is not totally depraved and he's not truly dead in his trespasses and sins, all you're doing is agreeing with the devil. That's what the devil said from the beginning. He said, thou shalt not surely die. So whose side are you going to take? Revelation 21, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there should be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Death in one, no death in other. Sorrow in one, no sorrow in the other. Genesis 3.16, unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. What a wonderful contrast in Revelation 21, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. You know, one thing I have to remind myself of constantly uh, when I'm having to deal with sorrow and in the last couple of years I've had to deal with a lot of it is that all this is just going to last for a short time. And uh, the sorrowless era of our lives is forever and ever. No more sorrow. All right, now at the beginning of the Bible, I've got a curse. The whole planet became cursed. At the end of the Bible, we're told there is no more curse. Genesis 3.17 at the beginning. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And uh, if you haven't noticed that our planet is cursed, then you, know, you sure must be living in oblivion somewhere. It's a, it's a cursed planet. Cursed planet. Every time I preach a funeral, I get reminded it's a cursed planet. You know, years ago, I got married when I was 36. And let's see, I was 38 when my first child was born, so I was already losing hairs, some of them turning graves, he wrinkles. So uh, the nurse came and handed me that baby, John, my son. And I remember I held him up. I looked at the front side, and I flipped him around, and looked at the back side. And the thought that went through my mind, there is not a blemish on his entire body. And here I got moles, warts, fly pommers, 
and bald spots and gray hair and all this. So uh, my body, with a little help from my wife, was able to create this brand new human. And yet my body does not know how to make me new again. It didn't know how to make a new liver, a new gallbladder. It knows how to make a new one in the baby, but it didn't know how to renew mine. Why? Because this place is cursed. Revelation 22, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now back to the beginning of the Bible. After the fall of man, the entrance to Eden was barred. And I go to the end of the Bible and I've got a wonderful city whose gates are always open. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life and barred. I much prefer Revelation 21, verse 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. The gates are always open. At the beginning of the Bible, we have dominion, the dominion of man being lost. At the end, it's regained. Genesis 1.28, at the beginning of the Bible. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the seas, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. You see, God created man in his own image. That means man was given highest rank and all things created. God would not make something in his own image and then put it in a subordinate role. And that, by the way, will explain why men are given even higher rank than angels. Paul tells you they are ministering servants, set to minister unto them who are to be heirs of salvation. And uh, that might also explain why the devil hates you so. He thinks he ought to be in top slot. And so he's been trying to bring you down and bring man down from the very beginning, you see. All right. Uh, man was made in the image of God, given top rank amongst all created things. And uh, I claim that anyone who denies that man was made in the image of God certainly has not uh, observed the world in which we live because if I look at what monkeys are doing today, uh, what uh, hippopotamuses are doing today, what rhinoceroses are doing today, they're doing the same thing they were a thousand years ago when they first made. The monkeys are climbing trees and fighting, peeling bananas, and uh, the hippos are being ill-tempered, chasing things out of the water and doing the things that hippos do. But what's man doing? He's not doing the same thing. He's sending rockets into space. 
He's building supercomputers. He's decoding genetics, discovering higher math. He has boundless potential. And what he has done is nothing compared to what he would have done if he'd obeyed God. Nothing. We've got nothing to brag about in our achievements. They are pathetic in comparison to what they could have been. He was made in the image of God. But he fell from that. And that's the reason why in the New Testament we'll read about being conformed. That means reconformed to the image of God's Son, which, of course, we read about Romans 8, 29, one of our favorite texts. But now listen to these verses that talk about man in the end. He is overcome. He is victorious. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. He's a joint heir. With Jesus Christ, every square inch of that new universe will be his. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. The world subdued, finally. You know, we don't have it subdued now, do we? Little old invisible viruses eating us up. We don't know what to do with them. Romans eight sixteen, The Spirit itself witnesseth with our spirit that we are the children of God, and the children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. And then Colossians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Oh, I love this verse. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Now thanks be unto God, which causeth, always causeth us to triumph in Christ. In the end, man is triumphant. And he has the dominion that God I gave him in the beginning, but was lost. All right, now I think that's about uh, 16 parallels that I have uh, presented to you between uh, the first of the Bible and the uh, beginning of the Bible. And then the last one, the most important of all. Jesus was there in the beginning. And Jesus is there at the end. Now, uh, you say, when I read those first few chapters of the Bible, I didn't know Jesus was there. Well, he was there. You, you know the opening verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. By the way, you notice how John begins the same way the Bible does. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God created. And I believe for years that John is resolving uh, an enigma in the opening verses of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. Excuse me. In the beginning, God created. You know the word for God is plural? 
but the sentence is structured to accommodate a singular. You know what people today would do? They'd say, oh, that's, a, that's an error. Hey, we need to come out with a revised version. We need to fix that. That's an error. Some scribe got it wrong. And once they fixed it, they would have totally broken it. Now, John is resolving for you the enigma in the opening verse of the Bible. Why did we have a plurality and a singularity? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians chapter 115. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist or are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Oh yes, he was back there in the beginning, invisible. In the end, he is there visibly. I long to see. I long to see. And uh, this year could not be soon enough. What a brilliant book the Bible is. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. The book ends where it begins. In praise to Jesus Christ. I hope your life will do the same. It will begin that way and end in praise to our Savior. Thank you very much.